good to see you guys today. Y'all have a good weekend, hopefully. Yeah, all right, a few of you have. Uh, how many of you guys like to take road trips? Okay, yeah, I, I thought it'd be a little bit more than that, but um, we have the, the great blessing of being able to uh, get around pretty easily in our country. I know I enjoy uh, taking trips to new places, trying to hit new states. Has anybody here been to all 50 U.S. states yet? Oh, okay, there's a couple. Oh, you won? Okay. Um, yeah, all right. Well, how, how many of you guys have been to the state of Missouri? Oh, wow. Okay, that's a lot of people. Apparently, Missouri, uh, there's this quiz website I like called Sporkle, um, and they said Missouri is the most forgotten state in the U.S., I, it, when you're the quiz of trying to name all the states, that's the number one state people forget. Um, but there's this interesting thing about Missouri. If you ever see their license plate, it looks like this. Uh, I always thought it was interesting. It has this show me state uh, on it. Has anyone ever noticed that before, this show me state thing? It's apparently the unofficial motto of the state. And uh, I was looking into this a little bit. And there's a lot of theories about how they acquired this nickname, um, but the most popular theory behind it, or at least how it became a popular nickname for Missouri, uh, came from a congressman in the late 1800s. His name was Willard Duncan Vandiver. And uh, in 1899, he was at a meeting. Yeah, doesn't that guy look like a boss? Um, he was at a meeting in Philadelphia, and he said, frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri and you have to go, you've got to show me. Um, so I guess that popularized the idea that Missouri is the show me state. Um, so Missouri might be the show me state, uh, but the attitude that William Duncan Vandiver had is shared by people that live all over the world, including me. Um, talk is cheap, but we actually want to see proof behind a claim. <clears throat> and uh, this year we've been preaching through the book of Romans, and we have seen some fantastic claims uh, that have been made. We've, Kyle preached last week, and uh, he was talking about the fact that trials can actually be good things that we can rejoice in, right? Like, that's a pretty crazy claim. Or uh, the week before that, I preached Romans 4, and uh, we saw that, that Paul was taking pains to help us see that we are saved completely by our faith, like not by our works. That's a pretty crazy claim. This week, we're going to be looking at what might be the most basic claim. Like, if you're a kid that grew up in church, it's probably a claim that uh, you've sang songs about. It might be something that you've heard so many times that you think you know it, but maybe have never really grasped the depth of it. And it's a very simple claim that God loves you. And I know that's, that seems like the most elementary of all things that you could possibly hear in church. It's like, that should only be talked about in children's church, but... Honestly, this is something that is so profound. And, and while I think that so many of us could say, yeah, yeah, of course God loves me. Like, we take it as a thing that's granted almost. Like, yeah, of course God loves me. But I, I think that for many of us, <clears throat> we actually don't live our lives in a way that reflects the deep reality that this is. Like saying, man, do I actually understand that God loves me? Because if I do that's going to have some pretty serious implications in the way it plays out in my life. And honestly, when you look at how great God is, I would add this to the list of fantastic claims. Say, what? You're telling me that God actually loves me? If you're going to tell me something like that, you better have some proof behind it. And so what we're going to be looking at today as we continue on in Romans chapter 5, we're only going to be covering six verses, but they're six of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
And it's really just Paul giving us evidence to support this claim that God really does love us. Um, so we'll be in Romans chapter 5, but before we do that, I want to pray. Um, God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for that simple yet profound truth that really is the foundation for so many things. And that is something that's totally transformative. I pray, God, that this morning you would help us to really grasp that, Lord. Help us to <clears throat> not just hear the words, but to actually experience the love that you have for us. God, I pray that, that this would be something that um, makes a profound difference in our lives. God, I think of how much in, in your scripture you're trying to communicate this reality to us and how uh, this is a prayer even that, uh, that Paul prayed in a different letter, asking that, that we would know the, the depth and the height and breadth and width of your love. And so God, we just ask this morning that for everybody uh, sitting here today, that we would have a greater grasp of your love for us. So Lord, be with us over this uh, time that your word is being preached, that you'd help us to focus and to listen. And God, I just ask that you'd remove distractions and fear and anxiety or anything else that we might have come in with this morning and help us to worship you as we pay attention to your word. We love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so as I said, last week Kyle preached on the first few uh, verses of Romans chapter 5. And uh, in this we saw that we can be people that are filled with hope, uh, even in times that seem really difficult and really hopeless. And the reason for this is the fact that God loves us. Romans 5.5 5 says that hope does not disappoint because of the love of God, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the reason that we can be people that have so much hope, even in the most difficult of times, is because of this simple fact that God loves us. If he loves us, it allows us to go through life with hope. But the idea of God loving us is actually kind of crazy. So Paul goes on to speak about this a little bit further. And here's our main text for this morning, Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. All right, so I, I love this passage because of how straightforward it speaks about all these reasons we have to exalt in the way that God loves us. But you might have noticed in the passage that Paul actually points out a lot of reasons that God has to not love us. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, um, but he mentions a, a few different reasons that you could say, man, these are why I would think God maybe wouldn't love us. And the first one is that we're helpless, right? Romans 5, 6, for while we were still 
helpless. That's the first thing we see. Some of your translations might say weak or powerless. Uh, The idea here is that we are people that are totally incapable of working out our own salvation or producing any kind of righteousness on our own. Now, it's not natural to be attracted to people that are weak and that are powerless, right? Like generally, we want to be around people that have something to offer, Think about how everyone wants to be connected to people that are greatly talented and capable, famous people, like things like that. Think of the people that you've wanted to build friendships with. How many of the people that you've really wanted to build a friendship with could be described in this way as being helpless? It's not generally an attractive quality. Or think about people that you've wanted to date. How many of you, when you're thinking about the person that you're dating right now, or, or maybe somebody that you hope to date in the future... How many of you would use the word helpless to describe them, or weak, or powerless? I doubt many of you are hoping to find a spouse that uh, would have this in their description of their personality. Now, there are times that we're drawn to the weak and the powerless. My six-month-old daughter, you just heard her leave the room there, um, she could very accurately be described as helpless, (laughs) Um, and she's easy to love. It's it's cute for now. right? Like, it's cute for now, but I don't want her to remain helpless forever. Like, if I'm still changing her diapers when she's 20, like, that, <laughs> that's not going to be cute anymore, right? Um, so, even though being helpless is unattractive, it's at least not a conscious choice, right? Like, it's just the reality of who we are as weak people when it comes to our ability to be righteous. It might be frustrating, but it isn't necessarily wrong. Like, I'll I'll be honest, it can be frustrating that my daughter can't do anything for herself. Like, sometimes I wish she could just clean up her own poop, or like, that she could fall asleep on her own. You know, like, some of the most basic things that that she actually needs help with, but I realize that that's not her fault. Like, it's just the the reality of the weakness that she has, because she's a baby. Um, So I don't get mad about it. But the next descriptor that we see in this passage is one that actually makes it it's a lot less attractive. And this is one that makes it a lot harder to believe that God would love us. And that's that we're described as ungodly. We see that while we were helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, think about what this term means. Literally, it's a term that's, that's saying that we're not like God, right? So think about God. He's perfect in every way. He's perfectly loving. He's perfectly patient. He's perfectly righteous, there is absolutely nothing bad that you could say about God. Like everything that's, that's perfect and good and awesome, that's a descriptor for God. So we want to be people that are godly, right? We want to be people that reflect him. But this says that Christ died for people that are ungodly. So all those great descriptors that you could give to God, think of the opposite of that. Th- those are the people it says Christ died for. And that's you and I that are included in that. That's pretty crazy when you think about it, right? Because I know that everyone in here is probably willing to make sacrifices for another person on some level. Um, and, and I think that the, the kind of sacrifice that you're willing to make for a person oftentimes is tied to the way that you view them, right? Like if someone is really awesome and you really think highly of that person and care about them a ton, you're probably willing to sacrifice a lot more to be willing to help them. In some cases, you might even be willing to die for another person. And that's what Paul gets at here in Romans 5, 7. He says, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. We aren't quick 
to be willing to give up our lives. But if a person is really, really great, we might be willing to do it. But the crazy thing about God's love for us is that he doesn't operate this way, right? He doesn't say, okay, well, man, if you're really worth it, if you're really, like, if you impress me a lot, then I'll be willing to sacrifice for you the way that you and I might be. Instead, Christ dies for those that are helpless and ungodly. And the only way that this can be explained is by looking at the great character of the one who is dying rather than the one that he's dying for. It's not the recipient of grace that is great, but rather the one who gives it that's great. And not only this, but God's love is so great that not only does he love the helpless, not only does he love the ungodly, but he even loves his enemies. That's a third descriptor that we see in this passage, right? In verse 10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Man, the descriptors that we've seen here have gone from bad to worse, right? Like helpless is just kind of annoying, maybe a little bit unattractive. Uh, ungodly is definitely repulsive. But enemies, that like takes it up a notch. This shows that our un- in our ungodliness, we're actually opposed to God, that there's an active hostility that existed between us. And very few people would say that they're an enemy of God, right? Like, I've, I've run into very few people that would ever make a claim like that. There aren't really a lot of militant atheists out there that are actively insulting God or opposing him in an open way. However, this isn't the only way that you can be an enemy of God. Like, you can be an enemy of God simply in the way that you live. If you live in a way that's rebelling against his rule, <clears throat> right? You think about that. Our God is king of the universe, and he's, he's written his law in our hearts. He's given us a conscience. He's told us what's right and wrong. He's laid it out in his word. And even if you're not familiar with his word, he's given you a natural understanding of many of the things that you know to be right or wrong. And frankly, so often we live in rebellion against his kingdom and against his rule. And if you're opposed to God, then your lifestyle puts you at odds with the world that he wants to have and thus makes you an enemy and you're standing before him. And so with all of that, you could say, man, you're going to say that God loves me. I can give you all of these reasons to say that he shouldn't. I'm helpless, I'm ungodly, and I'm even described as an enemy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that does seem like something that's hard to believe, right? I, I'm with William, or Willard Vandiver Van where I want to say, show me. If you're going to say that God loves me, show me somehow that I can actually believe this. And Paul says, all right, here's the proof. This is my favorite verse in the whole Bible, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man, this is a verse that is loaded with life-changing truth. I hope that every one of you guys memorizes this verse, that you meditate on this verse, and that you think about the implications that this has for your life. Because this is telling us exactly why God loves us. And the first thing I see is that it's because of who he is. Right? It starts with, but God. You know, verse 7 talked about how uh, people are not really willing to die for others that often, but though perhaps for a good man, someone would be willing to. But God demonstrates his love in this way. Right? So we see God isn't the same as us, and we've already talked about that to some degree. But he doesn't work the way that humans do. He doesn't have a love that's based upon what he can get from us. He loves because of how good he is. And so I would urge you, 
to not let the weakness of humans, who are the ones that need to be saved by his grace, mar your ability to trust and believe that God, in his goodness, can actually love you. Because he's different. And he shows that. He proves it. He goes on to say, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in this. You know, he doesn't just say it. We talk about, you know, talk is cheap. Anyone can say that they love you, but the way that you really know is, do their actions reflect it? Right? Like, I um, love my wife so much, and I love to express my love to her, but sometimes I even like to ask her, like, Cass, do you know that I love you? And she'll say, yes. I say, how do you know? And she'll always say, because you tell me and you show me. And, and man, like that is exactly what God does with us. He tells us, his word says it over and over and over again, right? If you were a kid that grew up in church, you probably grew up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But it's not just that. It's that he shows it too, right? He demonstrates it in the most significant way possible. He demonstrated his love by dying for us, and there is no greater act that you could have to show your love. Jesus said this in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. I don't think we'd argue with that, right? Is there any way that you could show that you love someone more? And doing this, you're saying that you're willing to give up absolutely everything for the sake of this other person. And you're only going to do this when you really love someone and when they really need it. I hate being in a position where I'm helpless where I need to ask someone to do something to help me. I don't like that feeling. I don't like asking someone else to sacrifice for me. Frankly, I think a lot of the time I doubt that uh, I'm, I'm worth the sacrifice that I'm asking that person to make. But God looks at us, and before we could even ask in our helpless state, he took initiative and stepped in to do what we couldn't. He died for us. And man, this is the crazy thing, right? At just the right time, God stepped in and did that. Christ died for our sins. I know I've talked about this a lot, but the Bible paints it very clearly, the fact that we are sinners that are worthy of death because of that, right? Like that's that's the penalty of sin. Death is in this world because of sin. And God's a righteous judge that promises he's going to punish all this, but because he loves us so much, he said, I want to forgive you. I want to bring you back to myself. I want to to show you how much I love you by saving you. I'm going to do that by dying on the cross for you. And so when Jesus went to the cross, all of the, the guilt that we have for our sins, the punishment that we deserve was put upon him. And here's the crazy thing, guys. Jesus went and did this for us while we were still sinners. This is the thing that always gets me. Like, he didn't go to the cross after we got our act cleaned up. He didn't say, like, hey, meet me halfway and then I'll go do it. Like, for all of us in this room, we weren't even born at the time that this happened. It was while we were still sinners that Jesus died for us. And guys, this is absolutely profound. This is the best evidence that we have that we do not need to earn God's love. He already gave it to you before you could earn anything. Right? Like, do you realize how freeing this is? If you were to let this really sink in, to say, God loved you enough to die for you on the cross while you were still a sinner, 
I think so many of us feel like we have to say, God, like, yeah, I'm sure you'll love me as soon as I learn to, like, pray better, or as soon as I learn to read my Bible more consistently, or as soon as I, like, cut out this porn habit in my life, or as soon as I, um, you know, can, can stop gossiping about people, or as soon as I can clean up my language, or whatever it may be, we think, like, well, God will love me once I get to this stage. And the cross speaks as loudly as it can, that, man, God already loves you. While you were still a sinner... Guys, do you realize how different this is from the way that we think and, frankly, how different it is from the way that we generally view religion? I talk to so many people that tell me that all religions are pretty much the same. It's about being a good person. And I couldn't disagree with this more because I don't think that's the crux of what Christianity is about. Frankly, because I don't think we're the crux of what it's about. I think that, that Christianity is, is not about us being good people. It's about God being a good God that saves us and brings us into a relationship with him. And as he does that, yes, we transform, but, but Christianity is not a call for us to go and try and clean up our act. It's a call for us to be reconciled and brought back to God. And guys, that's very, very different. You can't say that, that, all, that well, it's all, it all ends up being the same, right? Regardless of whatever road, whether you choose Buddhism or Mormonism or, or uh, Christianity or Hinduism or uh, Islam, whatever it may be, it doesn't matter. All of it ends up making you a better person. And well, guess what? I think a lot of religions can, can have a profound effect in helping people uh, be, reform their behaviors. The reality is there's only one that actually reconnects us to God. There is one way for us to be reconnected to God, and that is through Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this is why Jesus needed to die on that cross. God calls us to be people that have a relationship with him, that walk with him. You know, I still remember the first time that this verse, Romans 5, 8, really grabbed my heart. I was a freshman in college, I actually saw it written on someone's t-shirt, and uh, I just started to meditate on that. And, man, I, as a freshman in college, I was a person that was always trying to prove myself, right? I actually don't know why. I grew up in a really good home. I never felt like I had earned the love of my parents, but for whatever reason, I don't know if it's just the Enneagram 3 in me or whatever it is, like, I feel like I need to, to prove myself and achieve things, and, um, meditating on this verse, it, it just struck me like, Grant, you don't have to earn God's love. Like, he already gave it to you while you were a sinner. The gospel is something that has never stopped blowing my mind. I've been a Christian for a couple decades at this point, and I'm still amazed by the reality that God loves me apart from what I can do for him. says that he loved me even when I was still a sinner. And this is not to say that I don't ever sin anymore, but sinner is no longer my identity. I've been made a new creation, and my identity is now child of God. But he had to love me before this could happen. And so his love has some really, really serious implications for us. Right? And, and Paul goes on to list those. Romans 5, 9, he says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And this is the first thing that, guys, we, because of God's love, are saved from his wrath. We talked about how Jesus died for us, and uh, this is the payment for our sins. It washes our sins away so that we can stand before God as people who are declared not guilty. 
And this is what lets us be saved from the wrath of God. A lot of time we don't really like to speak about the wrath of God because frankly it's terrifying. But the Bible speaks of it, right? Like just like the Bible tells us of God's love, it tells us of God's wrath. And this is, this is a reality that we have to understand. 2 Peter 3, uh, 7 says this, But by his word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. This is God's wrath being poured out for our sins. And look at who it is that gets destroyed. Who? Ungodly men. It's an interesting word choice there, right? Because that's the same way that we're described in Romans 5, 6. The people that Christ died for. Let me remind you this. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, God's wrath is coming for the ungodly, but Jesus died so that we could be saved from this. He justified us by his blood and taking the wrath of God upon himself. You know, if you were at Fall Ghetto, I, I already shared this illustration, but um, for those of you that weren't there, I just want to share it again. This, this idea of the wrath of God already being poured out on Jesus for us. Back in when uh, Oregon Trail days, right, when, when people were uh, crossing the prairies, you think about the great fields of like Nebraska and Kansas, just all grass, prairie grass, as far as you can see. And uh, no roads, nothing like that. And if you're going out there and lightning strikes some of this grass, it can actually turn into this giant prairie fire that starts to move really quickly. And if you were a pioneer out there, either settled or, or just even passing through, if you saw this, you realized, I'm about to get burnt up by this unless I can do something to stop it. And so what they learned that they could do to stop this fire from coming and engulfing them is that they actually had to start burning the ground that was immediately around them with smaller fires to where it was able to get rid of all the grass. They would kind of make these circles where they'd go out a little bit further, a little bit further to where uh, they'd have these small fires that would burn up the grass to where eventually they could get a big enough stretch that was already burned that by the time the giant prairie fire came, they were saved from it because the ground on which they were standing was already burned. And guys, this is what we are when we are put in Christ. That, that the wrath of God, as it comes like that great all-consuming prairie fire, it comes, and as it gets to us, we are standing in Christ where the wrath of God has already been poured out. The ground on which we're standing is already burned, and we're saved from it. You know, God loves the ungodly, and he doesn't want them to experience his wrath. As a matter of fact, the very next verses in uh, 2 Peter 3 says this, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And what Peter's telling his readers is, hey guys, the reason that God's wrath hasn't come yet is because he wants people to be saved. Like he wants people to come to repentance because he doesn't take any joy in bringing his wrath out upon people. The prophet Ezekiel made this clear in Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn back from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God is gracious. He loves sinners and he wants to forgive us. The question is simply whether or not we are going to come to him and experience his love. 
And that's, that really brings me to the next implication, is that not only are we saved from his wrath, but we are reconciled to him. Verses 10 and 11 say this, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Okay, Paul is talking about this idea of reconciliation a lot. And what it means to be reconciled is to be brought back into a relationship. That we were once uh, set apart from each other, our sins separated us from God, and that now we have been brought back together. So think of uh, maybe a friend or a family member that you had a falling out with, and that God did something to restore that. Something happened to where that relationship was fixed and you were brought back together. That's what's happened with us because of what Jesus did on the cross. You see, the, and this reconciliation implies relationship. The gospel isn't just about us being saved from the wrath of God and not going to hell. That's very important and very significant, yes. But it's more than that. It's also about us being brought into relationship to experience life with God. The implications of the gospel affect us way before we die. It's not just that God like, that he loves us, but he likes us too right? Like, I think that that is hard for us to grasp as well sometimes. Like, God actually wants to hang out with you, right? Like, he wants a friendship. He doesn't just want to, like, save you as this, this helpless person that kind of needed something, but he's going to keep you at an arm's distance. He saves you and brings you into his family. You know, the greatest commandment is very relational, right? Jesus tells us the heart of God, what he wants most. He says this here in Matthew 22, 37 to 38, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. How awesome is it that the, the thing God really wants is just for you to love him? So he wants more than anything else. That's the heart of God. Right? Another way you could put this is the fact that God actually wants us to walk with him. I love how the prophet Micah puts this in Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Man, what a privilege that we get to be people that God calls us to, to walk with him. Right? Like, like the Christian life is not just about us uh, following rules or believing certain doctrines or anything like that. It's about us loving God and walking with him. And this is the beauty of being brought back into relationship with him. You know, the Christian life should be very rich. And I don't mean that monetarily. Um, what I mean is, is rich in the, the experience that we are connected to the actual giver of life. And this will change your day-to-day -day experience if you're conscious of it. Um, yesterday, a group of us um, did what, what we call silence and solitude, which is basically we just took a portion of our day from morning until mid-afternoon, and just uh, went off to go and, and, and be alone with God. And this is something I try and make a regular practice in my life. And it, it's cool because being a child of God, I'm able to actually just like walk around the city and just know God is with me. Like I'm walking with God right now. I'm able to speak with him about anything that I see. I'm able to, to cast all my cares before him, right? Like, like think of how freeing this is. What, what would this do to the anxiety that you have in your life when you understand that you're actually getting to walk with God? He's there with you in everything. When you're taking your test, when you're studying, when you're asking that girl out, whatever it may be, like the Lord is there walking with you. How cool is that? 
How life-changing is it for you to understand that you're actually with God in all of this? You know, we are designed to be people that daily experience knowing that God is present and that he cares. God loves you whether or not you love him. Like your love towards the Lord actually doesn't have a bearing on whether or not he loves you. He loves you whether or not you believe in him. What you think and what you do makes no difference with regard to the reality that God loves you. What does make a difference on your end is whether or not you're, you're going to experience that love. Right? Like it's there one way or the other. The question is, are you going to experience it? You know, when I think about this, I think about the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus told, right? Where uh, this son basically uh, asks his father for his inheritance early. And he wants to go off into this country, uh, foreign country and, and kind of live a wild lifestyle. And so basically what he's saying is, Dad, I really don't want to be here with you anymore. I kind of wish you were dead because really what I want is your money. So can I have my half of the inheritance now and get out of here? And so his father does. He, he gives him that. And this, the son goes off and he spends this time in wild living and blows his money on prostitutes and, and things like that. And eventually he runs out and he finds himself... Uh, serving pigs, you know, giving food to pigs and, and wishing that he could eat the stuff that he's feeding them because he's so hungry. And he's just there, it uh, dawns on him, my goodness, like the servants in my father's house live better than I am right now. I'm going to return and say, dad, I'm no longer worthy of being your son, but please like just take me on as a hired hand. And so the son goes back and it says that the, the father saw him even when he was a long way off. And when he saw him, that the father ran and came to him. And, and the son tries to say, hey, I'm, I'm not worthy of being your son. And the father just says, no, no get, get the, the best clothes, put, him on, put it on him, put a ring on his finger. This, this son of mine was lost and now he is found. And they celebrate and they throw a party and they, they kill the fatted calf. And there's a lot more to the story as well with what Jesus was trying to communicate in that parable. But one of the things that we see that father never stopped loving the son, right? Like he loved him from the beginning. And even when he went off and he was blowing his money on prostitutes and the sons thought, there's no way that my dad is actually gonna take me back as a son. I don't even deserve that. What was the father's reaction? The love he had was always the same. He came and he, he put the best clothes on him and he killed the fatted calf. The, the only difference was that while that son was off and away and rebelling against his father, he wasn't getting to experience the love that his dad had for him all along. And this is the tragedy I think that so many of us have. That, that we go off and we try and do things our own way and we're attracted by other things in the world or wherever it may be. And the fact, the, the reality is, guys, even if you're living as a fool, that God still loves you. But what you're doing is depriving yourself of the opportunity to actually experience that. Just like the prodigal son was depriving himself of the opportunity to experience the love that his father had the whole time he was gone. So really my question for you is will you experience the love of God? It's there. It's real. He demonstrated it, right? He demonstrates this in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And may you be people that are freed by this. 
I, I hope that the Lord really starts to like break some chains that, that people have in their lives right now that are just holding you down, that if you were to understand that God really loved you, that your life would look different. That you'd be freed from anxiety. You'd be freed from fear, that we'd be people that are courageous. How courageous can you be when you know that God is literally walking with you? That he loves you, regardless of what kind of mistakes you may even make? How much joy would this give you in your life? So you know, every day, regardless of whatever, whether you failed your test, whether you aced it, whether you did well in your sporting event or you didn't, whether you got the job or the co-op you wanted or you didn't, whether you got the person to date you that you wanted to or not, whatever it may be, none of that changes the fact that God loves you. What kind of stability would we, be, what would we have as people if we lived with that mentality, Right? Like, you, th- you think about how, this is how the Apostle Paul was able to say, like, yeah, rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances. He said that, uh, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, and I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Why is that? Why was he able to be so content and so secure, regardless of whether he was in jail, uh, or on a prison ship, or whether he was, you know, in, in the fellowship of other believers that loved him while he was not in jail? The, the reason he was able to be so stable is because he was so utterly convinced of the love that God had for him. And he experienced that on a daily basis. And as we get this, guys, we should be people that are full of thankfulness. I think about it, Paul, like, I, I love these verses because he just keeps on saying basically like it's getting better and better and better. He says, not only this, not only this. And he talks about how not only this, we exalt in Christ Jesus who gave us reconciliation. And so one of the marks of a Christian should be that we are people that are thankful, that are filled with gratitude, right? Is that something that describes you? Because if you live every day understanding that God loves you, how could you be an ungrateful person? Like you'd be a person that's filled with so much more thankfulness and so much more gratitude. Just understanding and believing this simple truth every day. Guys, sometimes it's the most simple stuff that we have the hardest time believing. And sometimes it's the most simple stuff that makes the biggest difference. And so I know that probably every person in this room has heard that God loves you, but I hope that just in the time I've had here with you this morning, the Spirit's able to work through me a little bit to help that resonate with you more deeply than it has before. And that you go forth as people that remember every day, every second of every day, regardless of what happens that God loves you and that he has called you to walk with him. And guys, if there's some of you in here that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, like I was saying, he still loves you the same. The question is, are you going to experience his love? And if you want to learn what it looks like to start walking in that and to actually have a relationship with God, then man, we would love to talk with you about that. I'll be in the back. There'll be some other people back there that you can pray with that would love to speak with you about what that looks like and how to start walking with him. If you need prayer for anything else, maybe you are already walking with the Lord, but for whatever reason, you just need this truth to sink in a little bit more deeply with you. Then once again, there's people back there that would love to pray with you. Um, But I'm going to pray for us as a group here and the the band can come back up. Um, God, we thank you that you are a really, really good God. Um, We thank you that your mercy uh, and your grace are 
so deep uh, that they don't run out. God, I thank you that you have a kind of love that uh, when we look at all the reasons for why you might not love us, it, it seems crazy almost that you do, Lord, but I thank you that it's true that you do. And I pray that you'd help us to believe that, God. Help us to experience your love on a day-to-day basis. God, free us from the things that are plaguing us that, that would be gone if we were able to really just understand the love and care that you have for us as your children. And God, I, I just pray that you'd help us to be people that are thankful as we uh, enter into this time of musical worship. God, let us uh, really be celebratory. We have so much to celebrate. I thank you, Lord, that we've been saved from your wrath. And I thank you that we've been reconciled to you, brought into relationship. Lord, we, we want to experience that in a deeper way. And we want the world around us to experience it, Lord. So just be glorified in our praises. And what we sing to you and in the way that we live from here on out. Uh, We love you and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.